If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This was a case where I think any reasonable jury hearing the evidence should not have convicted him. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We've recently been covering the story of Temujin Kenzu. Convicted of murder in 1986, he spent the last almost 37 years trying to clear his name. Temujin, although in an obviously dire situation, does have an advantage that so many do not who are in his position. He has a ton of advocates on his side trying to get him free, including this man. My name is Imran Syed. I am a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and I am a co-director of the Michigan Innocence Clinic, which is run out of our law school here. Uh, And I've been here for about 12 years. As we know from previous cases we've discussed, the United States has a number of these innocent-style organisations working tirelessly to help the thousands of wrongfully convicted men and women incarcerated across the country. With this number sitting at approximately 20,000 people, there's definitely a lot of work to be done. You know, there's a a lot of innocence projects that sit under that banner, organisations that uh, aim to help those who've been uh, wrongfully incarcerated. Do you guys, I would imagine, get inundated with requests for help uh, at the the organisation? I think the short answer is yes, but it's not as many requests as you would think. You know, when we first opened up, which was about 12, 13 years ago, we did get pretty inundated because pretty much anyone who was eligible to apply and many who were not eligible to apply uh, chose to apply um, right at the beginning. And so we had, you know, in our first couple of years, uh, probably over 10,000 requests pretty quickly. Wow. Uh, Michigan at the time, I believe, had a prison population of about 50,000. So we heard from one out of every five uh, incarcerated people here in the state. Um after that initial influx, I think it's slowed down to we probably get one or two new requests every week. Yeah. But of course, we have to work through all of those. And our clinic, what made it unique from the beginning is that we uh, focused on non-DNA cases, which 
means that there's not really a specific thing we're looking for in a case. We're just looking to see if the case smells bad somehow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that sort of investigation takes a lot of time. So even though the new cases coming in have slowed down, we still have plenty of work investigating the cases that did come in. So, yes, it's definitely very busy around here, but I'm very grateful that the influx of new applications is not like it initially. Yeah. It's interesting you say that you guys decided to go with the non-DNA specific cases because a lot of these innocence organizations do focus on that DNA. You can probably tell me why, but I'm assuming because it's a lot stronger case possibly to answer if there's DNA involved. Yeah, I think initially when the the innocence movement started out, and most people see the late 80s, the advent of forensic DNA as the beginning of that movement, um, you know, it was the first time that you could have really truly objective evidence across the board that showed that someone was innocent. And so, yeah, that's what that's what people were going for, for the better part of the first 10, 15 years of this movement. Um, but those initial DNA exonerations taught lessons to all of us about what goes wrong in a case. Yeah. And, you know, those kinds of things that go wrong obviously go wrong even in cases that don't have DNA evidence. So the co-founders of this clinic, uh, one of whom is now my co-director here, um, their philosophy was uh, that, you know, it would be an interesting challenge for law students to, to review cases um, that don't have DNA evidence, but see if we can, you know, use... Other forensic science evidence, we do use a lot of forensic science or just, you know, new witness testimony and and just good old fashioned investigation to get new evidence and and see if we can exonerate some people. And I don't even think we knew what to expect at the beginning, um, but we've had really successful, you know, 13 years here. I guess we officially opened in 2009, so 14 years. 41 is, I think, the number of people that we've freed from prison in that time. So. Yeah. And virtually all of them are non-DNA cases. We actually have, we do DNA work. It's just, we're not exclusively DNA, you know. You're based out of a a university, that's right, yeah? We are. We are. We're we're based at the University of Michigan um, Law School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So the idea behind this is students work on these these cases and uh, as they're going through, obviously, their their law degree or their courses, does that mean that you have Obviously, they say many hands make light work. Does that give you an advantage, do you think, having all those students uh, available to to work on these cases? Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, Without students, I don't think we could do even 10% of the work we do. During the school year, which is all times except the summer months, during the school year, we have probably 24 to 30 students at any given time, and they each have cases that they're working on. You know, there's always an attorney supervising their work, and we have a lot of meetings to determine where a case is going, but they do a lot of the legwork. And, you know, my favorite part of this work is where there's stuff being done that I don't know about because we've trained these uh, students uh, well enough that they can go and run out and do all of this work. And it, But it's not just the quantity of the students. Um, I think also we've been fortunate enough to have really committed people um, who you know, really just believe in in the justice system and improving it. And um, that's been that's been the most uh, kind of rewarding part of this work is not only obviously exonerating people, freeing them, seeing them come home to their families, but also training students who will go on to hopefully make a difference for the rest of their careers. So, well, this is what I was going to say, because what I like about this whole setup is I'm assuming, you know, those some of those students may go on to become prosecutors. Um, they're not necessarily yeah. all going to become defense attorneys. So, you know, if you've got these students already working on these cases of wrongful convictions, you know, that go into the prose- prosecution's office, then, I, then right. you know, maybe that gives them a, a bit more of a, not sort of such a blinkered view when they see a case come across their desk. You know, yeah. having those students already witnessing what can go wrong 
could really help them in the future as, as prosecutors. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, we, we aim to have a clinic where we get students that plan to do all different kinds of things because we want to expose everyone to this kind of work. You don't want just those people that were interested in it to begin with, right? You ideally want to bring new people into the movement. And um, I think one of the biggest, I, I told you there were lessons that came from the DNA cases. One of the biggest lessons was that, you know, we can't have these different kind of polarized groups that never really speak to each other, that if you're defense-oriented, then you never think about prosecutors, and if you're prosecution-oriented, you don't think about the defense. That's not appropriate, because um, especially prosecutors in our system, um, they have the most power of any uh, actor in the system, and, and I include in that the judge. The prosecutor is the one who decides whether to charge people, what to charge them with, what evidence to use. Um, there's a lot of discretion there, and if you're trained in a you know just a one-sided view of the world that there are good people and bad people and I'm going to get the bad people you know that's that's not going to be uh the, that's going to be a very heavy-handed use of the prosecutorial power um but if you're exposed to this side of the work you you see the cases that go wrong that makes you more careful in your own work um and and I think overall improves the cause of justice so yeah that's absolutely one of the goals we have is to train the next generation of prosecutors as well. What made you specifically want to, to um, explore this area of the, the wrongful conviction stuff? You know, I was fortunate enough. Um, I was in law school in 2009 when when this uh, clinic was founded and I was learning about it as, as you know, it was being discussed in local media and things like that. And, and to me, it always just seemed like... Um, the best outlet for for my legal skills, right? Um, I enjoyed doing the investigation, legal research, and things that are involved in all kinds of litigation. But to me, uh, doing it in this context um, was just so meaningful. And so, you know, I uh, applied to be a student in the clinic, was fortunate to be randomly selected, essentially. Um, and I was a student in it for two years, loved the work, uh, and then was fortunate enough to have a, a chance to apply to for a fellowship to continue working here after I got my law degree. And, uh, you know, that was 12 years ago, and I'm, I've clinged on to it as much as I can, and hopefully I'll get to do it for a long time. Do you remember the first case you were involved in that got, got someone out of prison? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, that was, uh, you know, a really meaningful experience. Um, it was a case I had taken on in my third year of law school, uh, worked up, written the briefs, and then filed it. And then two students who worked on it with me, they graduated, of course, and they they left. And I was fortunate enough that in my first year as an attorney, um, we got to see that case through, and I got to go, um, as that man was walked out of prison after 26 years of wow. wrongful incarceration. It was a really meaningful, I mean, they're all very meaningful and moving stories, but this man had been convicted of killing his wife and children, and he hadn't. They had died in an accidental house fire. And so you can just think of the immense kind of sadness surrounding that where he lost his family and then is wrongfully convicted of of killing them. And then 26 years later, we actually didn't even have to litigate the case in court because once we presented the new evidence, the prosecution agreed with us. So oh, wow. that's kind of like, that's amazing, of yeah. course, but it compounds the tragedy of it, which is at the end of the day, there was really no evidence that any crime happened and this man lost, you know, 26 years of his life. So, Convicted of killing his family in a fire, police say he said David Gavitt spent 26 years in prison. Now he's been released. A flawed investigation into the flames was at the heart of an appeal by the University of Michigan Innocence Clinic for David Gavitt's release. I really hadn't had a chance to grieve for him. I had to fight. 
I had to fight for my freedom. I had to fight for the truth to come out. In David's case, it was a pure science case. Um, there was no motive ever presented. At the heart of the problem, these reports that a scientist testified showed that David Gavitt poured gasoline throughout the house before setting it on fire. If it had been gas, the peaks and valleys of this report should have matched the peaks and valleys of a report made from a known gas sample. While an expert testified that the report was positive for gas, several analysts have now found that it was wrong. The reports don't match. There was no gas. That was something else. That was, you knew that this was more than just, uh, oh, well, some people would look at it this way, some people would look at it this way. This was really, they got it wrong. That was a really meaningful experience. I've had a chance to, and I haven't counted, but I would say it's in somewhere in the 20s, the number of cases that I've been able to be involved with where people were walked out of prison. And uh, yeah, there's there's nothing like it. I mean, one successful victory will power you through years of, of struggling on cases. Yeah, so. I bet. Yeah, Imran, why do you think this happens? Why do you think, as you said there, this gentleman was convicted of murdering his wife and kids in a house fire that had no evidence? How, yeah. Why and how does this happen? You know, there's a long version of this answer, but the short version is there's just not enough recognition for the possibility of human error and bias in the criminal justice system. Um we saw this in the case I was just describing where this man's house has caught fire and and the police investigators were so convinced that they magically knew this answer. And of course, if I say to anyone, hey, do you magically know an answer? They'd say no, because they know magic's not real. Mm. Um, but when you go with your gut feeling over and over and no one ever checks you, you, you kind of just develop this aura of infallibility about yourself. Where yeah. You're walking onto crime scenes and without the slightest bit of real evidence, you're saying this man set the fire, let's put him away for the rest of his life. Whereas, you know, in a vacuum, all of us would struggle to do that. All of us would say, hey, I don't want to be responsible for someone's life. But when, you know, your investigative kind of authority has been gone unchecked all these years, um, you know, it makes us all kind of authoritarians in a way. And, you know, for too long, I think police investigators uh, just never had anyone pushing back on them, right? Yeah. And so I, I said earlier that the DNA cases taught us lessons. One of the biggest lessons they taught us is, the defense needs to have resources to investigate cases to be able to push back. Now, of course, that doesn't fix everything, right? Uh, Temujin Kensu's case is an example where there was a very significant defense presented. He had all kinds of alibi witnesses showing that he couldn't have committed the crime. Sometimes you still get convicted, but there are still things we can do to minimize the chances of wrongful conviction. And I think there's a lot more recognition of that today than there certainly was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, you know, back then there were articles being written about the impossibility of wrongful conviction, how, you know, the system is so great that it's virtually impossible that you would go through a trial and have a jury convict you if you're innocent. I mean, that's ridiculous. And that was always ridiculous, but now we have proof it's ridiculous. Uh, the National Registry of Exonerations has over 3,000 people that they've documented since 1989 in the United States alone um, who were who are fully exonerated. There's a, you know, the number of people who are actually innocent and still fighting their case or actually innocent and pled to a lesser charge to go home. That number is far greater than 3000. Yeah. But there's 3000 who are, you know, fully exonerated. So yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. I'm glad we've begun to recognize it, but we're still at the very early stages of solving it. 
A quiet thank you was all Andrew Leander Wilson could muster from his seat in court today after learning he would be a free man after more than 30 years of trying to prove his innocence. Jeff Deskovic was convicted of raping and killing classmate Angela Coria, a crime he didn't commit. Still, he served 16 years in prison and was only freed when the Innocence Project proved the DNA of another man who'd gone on to kill someone else showed that that man had carried out the crimes for which Deskovic served. Kevin Fox was accused of killing his three-year-old daughter Riley in Will County. He was cleared by DNA, but his life was never the same. After 34 years, Sidney Holmes is now a free man. His family overcome with emotion as he takes his first steps out of the Broward County County Jail. I can't put in through it. I don't. Back in 1988, Holmes was convicted for being a driver in a robbery. But in court, the state attorney's office explained that Holmes not only had no ties to the robbers, but didn't have any fingerprints or physical evidence tied to the crime. The state says one flawed witness identification gave him a 400-year sentence. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
let's talk about Temujin Kenzu's case, of course. When was, when was the first time you had that come in front of you? Uh, yeah, I was still a law student, um, 2010. I believe it yeah, it was the fall of 2010, summer maybe. Um, and I was reviewing a document, and it's actually funny because the case in some ways was at the same stage back then as it is now. He was seeking clemency from Michigan's governor two governors ago. Yeah. 2010 would have been the end of her term, and he was trying to get clemency uh, at that point. Um, and there was a senator from Michigan, Carl Levin, a very well-known uh, politician here um, in the United States, who had been a criminal justice uh, advocate and um, we were trying to convince him to, to advocate on this case. Um, so I was editing and sending to him a document, just kind of summarizing the facts of this case. And I did that, you know, late summer of 2010, unfortunately clemency was denied at that time. I became attorney on this case initially um, around 2011. And yeah, you know, I've had other people uh, with me for, on and off, but you know, I've essentially been the attorney on this case since 2011. Well, one of the people that listened to my show told me about Temujin and said, "Oh, you should look at this this story." And the more I read about it, the more I just shook my head. And then doing interviews with the, their private investigator, um, you know, and Bill Proctor, uh, all the other people who've been involved in this, and they tell me all these you know little tidbits, and you just go, "How is he? How is this man still in prison after yeah. nearly 37 years when all of this information has come out? I mean, you know, not to mention, you know, the absolutely absurd thing that the prosecution came up with about the flight with actually no right. evidence at all to back up their theory. Even ignoring that, you know, looking at the fact that all these people involved in this case are all interconnected. You've got a defence attorney who helped the lead detective get back on the police force after he was kicked off the force for his misconduct. You know, you've got the judge who was helped by the prosecutor in his, you know, legal battles with, you know, driving offences or whatever that may be. It is so incestuous, this whole entire case. I just look at it and I just go, how is this man still in prison after all these years? Is it just yeah. a, is it just money? Are they just worried that this is going to you know, be a lawsuit that they cannot afford? You know, I have beliefs about what that what that is about, but I think it begins with an unfortunate reality, which is that all of us have trouble admitting a mistake. And those of us who have power, again, just kind of have this sense of, you know, invincibility about ourselves where we just convince ourselves we're right. And I think... Um, the defensiveness from the prosecution in this case is it unfortunately goes beyond money. I don't think this is just about money or just about, um, you know, their belief uh, about this case. I think this is just the need to not be shown to be wrong, you know? Um, and I think that's why they've dug into this case from the beginning. And if you go back to 87, why do you charge this person to begin with? Right. Um, when all this evidence says that maybe you don't like him, maybe he's not a likable person, but there's absolutely no evidence that he committed this crime. Yet you, you know, fight for, to, to push this, you know, square peg in a round hole. Why? Because you're convinced that you're the smartest person here and this guy shouldn't be able to outsmart you. I mean, really, that's what it turned into. There's yeah. there's just no reason to have prosecuted Temujin Kensu to begin with. Um, and I think there's definitely, you know, ego at play from the prosecution and police to even do that. And then, of course, that's just gotten, you know, reinforced at every level since then, because after 30 years of saying something, they're not going to, you know, there's just too much cost involved in them backing down at this point. Yeah. Um, and that's really unfortunate. Um, 
you know, it's based in this human tendency of not wanting to admit a mistake. But when you're a prosecutor and a police officer, you have higher responsibilities. You can't let something turn into a personal contest of, you know, egos between you and and some guy you arrested. I mean, that's not a fair fight, right? When you're the judge, the prosecutor, the police officer, you have all these powers. Um, so you shouldn't make things personal. You should follow evidence. And, and no matter how much you may like or dislike a guy, if the evidence says he didn't do it, he didn't do it. Um, so, you know, it started there. That's uh, that's how I see this trial. Why does this trial happen to begin with, right? And then why does he get convicted? Well, he gets convicted because you can have irrational things happen in life. You know, it it it's rare. But this was a case where I think any reasonable jury hearing the evidence should not have convicted him. Yeah. Yet this particular jury did because unreasonable things happen. In fact, that's one of the... Uh, you know, our Supreme Court has recognized that's one of the sentences that I that I use in uh, in his clemency application, which is unreasonable verdicts happen, unfortunately, right? Mm-hmm. And we can sit here and talk about what could the defense have done more of. Certainly, they could have done more. Could they have tried to suppress some irrelevant evidence the prosecution was using as far as, you know, him owning ninja weapons and all that kind of nonsense, which was irrelevant to this case, right? This man was shot in a parking lot. So mm-hmm. whether Timogen owned throwing stars or not was... But also laying out, laying out a table in the courtroom full of weapons with actually no explanation as to what these weapons were doing there is just absolutely absurd and why the judge didn't turn around to the prosecution. You know, the judge is there to control the courtroom. So why he's not turning around to prosecute and saying, excuse me, sir, what are these doing here? And is there an explanation for why these are here? But that wasn't said. It was just laid out as, as Bill Proctor said, it was part of the show. Yeah. And, and, you know, we see this sometimes in, in kind of the small town, uh, big crime situations, right? Yeah. If this exact same shooting happened at a community college in a big city, I mean, this trial, first of all, would be one fourth as long. Um, they'd investigate. And if they found evidence against someone, they try them. If they didn't, they'd move on. Right? Yeah. And it's sad when a crime goes unsolved. But it's much more sad when the wrong person gets charged and convicted because now you've got kind of two crimes being committed, the original crime and then this wrongful conviction, right? Um, So, look, despite the shortcomings and things we can point to that went wrong at that trial, the jury still should not have convicted him. I mean, at the end of the day, there was still more than enough evidence to create reasonable doubt. And they did convict him. And then, you know, every appeal uh, tends to be a rubber stamp. You know, the prosecution likes to say, oh, so many judges and courts have reviewed this conviction and affirmed the conviction. That's not really how the system works. They're not looking at the facts again, right? They're looking at procedural technical reasons for why they cannot get involved in the case, right? And and that's kind of bizarre, but no, no one since the jury has looked at the facts, right? All the courts, one judge actually tried to look at the facts and then she was overturned by saying, you cannot be reviewing the facts because he should have presented this evidence earlier. But that just, or, that's just know. absurd, Imran. It's just absurd yeah. that you cannot review the facts in the case once it's been, yeah. I mean, it, I just don't understand that. It's like, why, why are right. we not reviewing the facts? We have, surely that's the one thing we should be reviewing is the facts in the case. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you know. Yeah. And I can tell you why they do it, but that that I don't agree with it. I mean, there's not, there's no justification. I can give you the reason, which is just, oh, the jury, we trust the jury more than any judge. The jury is, is lay people and we trust them and we shouldn't be second guessing their decision. But I got to tell you, um, a jury is only as good as the evidence you give them. Of course. And if you're, if you're not giving them all of the evidence and if you're giving them irrelevant evidence, 
they're lay people. They don't know that they shouldn't convict someone just because they don't like them, right? That's not, and 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 so much of this trial was testimony from Timogen's ex-girlfriend about what a bad guy he was. Yeah. And regardless of whether that's true or false, mm. it doesn't mean he's just mean he's a shot murderer. a guy in a parking yeah, lot. Yeah, exactly. When he's got all these alibi witnesses putting him 400 miles away, right? But, but a lay jury doesn't know that. And if you taint the jury by making them hate a guy, they'll convict someone even without the evidence, right? Um, and so, yeah, and unfortunately, I think maybe this is true in the United States more than other places where appellate courts are very, very limited. Um, and that's precisely kind of the reasoning behind our clemency application, which is, you know, the courts have deemed themselves powerless to undo this, right? Um, at this stage, like, it's hard to get any neutral. I mean, I've never found a neutral person who reads the facts of the case and says, oh, he totally could have done it. Yeah. No one thinks that. Yeah. Because when you read the facts of this case, you walk away saying, you know, he, he probably didn't do it or he definitely didn't do it. Um, so what we're hoping to get from the governor is, you know, in this in this uh, clemency situation is, you know, read the facts and decide, did he do this? Or what are the chances that he did it? And if there's doubt here, and and I think there's very, very significant doubt that he's guilty, you know, let's not, let's not pass the buck again. Right. Because that's what one court has done after another, just saying jury convicted him and we're powerless to do anything. And we've had prior governors do that. As I said, 2010, we were seeking clemency from one governor, 2018, we were seeking it from another one. And here we are with the third governor, you know? I mean, again, going back to this jury situation, it's like another case that I'm, uh, I sort of deal with on the show, a gentleman by the name of Everisto Salas Jr., quite obviously did not do the crime that he was convicted of. And, you know, it's been proven um, in not just my show, in, in a couple of TV shows as well. In fact, in one of the TV shows, they interviewed one of the detectives who was involved in it, and they said to him, like, do you think he did it? And he just goes, oh, well, the jury convicted him. And I'm like, but do you, do you think he, he did it? It's like, well, the jury convicted him, so and I, I'm, I'm, right. I go with what the jury say. And it's like there's so much weight held on the, on the jury decision. And yeah. it's 12 people, you know, half of which, probably more than half, don't want to be there. You know, it's taking them away from their lives. They don't know about the law. You know, I've had another um, case that I've I've dealt with. It's in Texas where the jury were interviewed by the um, defence attorneys afterwards to find out how, you know, why they came to their decision. And one of the juries said to them, oh, well, the prosecution didn't really convince me that he was guilty, but then you didn't tell us who did it. And it's like, that's reasonable doubt, guys. It wasn't yeah. explained to the jury what reasonable doubt is, you know? And it's <laughs> right. just, and it's, it's crazy. But there's, you know, the, and this man has lost his life. He's, got, he's gone to prison. He's lucky he didn't get the death penalty. I mean, I, I have real issues with the jury system and, you know, and, and this is another one of them, you know, you've got, you've got, say, you know, you've got your 12 people in there. If there's four people who are saying, we're just guys, we just don't think they're, they're guilty on this, you know, it, it's basically who's got the more willpower <laughs> wins really and the other ones just go oh give up and just go all right guys guilty exactly and look uh having done this work and and you know obviously i only see the cases that go wrong right um i have a a lot of uh doubts about whether the jury system is is the best way to to have justice because you know i think lay people and i know like everyone in my family i'm the only lawyer they're all great people they're all nice people but they don't understand that, hey, I can drive my decision based on A, but not B. Like normal people don't compartmentalize like that. Normal people don't say, oh, they told me this fact is irrelevant, so I won't consider it. That's not how normal people function. If you heard an irrelevant fact, you're still going to consider it, right? So I have similar concerns about the jury system. And, you know, you're absolutely right, where the jurors know that they're stuck in this room until they reach a decision. 
it's really only the really, really strong-minded that are going to hold out. And the rest of them will say, well, whatever, I'll do it because what do I lose? And it takes superhuman strength to to be the kind of person, you know, and of course, this is dramatized and glamorized in, in Hollywood with like, you know, 12 Angry Men, the classic play and in, in, in film. Um, the average juror who's, you know, uh, having to take time off of work has kids that need to be taken care of. I mean, this is not this is not important enough to them to hold out for days or weeks or over a weekend. And I have a lot of issues with that. I think there's a number of people who I've represented and still represent who were convicted on weak evidence because a jury decided, well, we need to go home. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, and, and the problem is because, I mean, actually one of our listeners came up with an interesting idea that the juries should be, it should be a paid job and there should be a large pool of people who are properly paid for this, you know, to do this job. They have an understanding, don't have to be, you know, lawyers, but they have an understanding of the legal system and they're actually paid to be there and to, to deliberate on this. But the issues, I think, start from the very beginning when there's jury selection where you've got both sides choosing people that they think will be the best for their argument, you know, they, course, and, and getting yeah. rid, of, rid of people who, you know, might not help their case. And, and again, I, I just don't see that as unbiased. No, what you're describing with professional juries, I think would be a, a huge improvement on the current system. Unfortunately, it would require a fundamental rewriting of, mm, yeah. you know, one of the most core tenets of our, of our constitutional system, which is trial by your peers, right? Yeah. A jury of your peers. So... 200, 300 years ago, that seemed like a good idea, right? Like, I don't want some scholar in some faraway university deciding if I'm guilty. I want people just like yeah, me deciding. Yeah, people around me, yeah. Uh, I think in practice, that's nonsense um, for the reasons that we've discussed. Uh, yeah. And, that, I and that's would, the issue. I, I all, these, that, all these things were made hundreds of years ago, you know, yeah. especially when you're looking at the American Constitution. I don't want to attack America, but, you know, you've got this Constitution that was written <laughs> hundreds of years ago. You know, we yeah. won't get into the guns, <laughs> the gun laws and all that rest right, of it. Right. But, but these laws were written hundreds of years ago, like, you know, and, yeah. you know, and they're still looked at as like this, we will follow this. This was written by our forefathers. And, yeah. you know, it's like, but guys, yeah. times change and we look back on things, you know. Yeah. It, it, it's like you look back on the past and you say, well, that was wrong. We need to change that. It's this kind of race to the bottom where neither side wants a single juror who they think will be an independent thinker. They don't want someone <laughs> no. who's going to bring their own, uh, you know, intelligence to the table. They want someone who is just such a blank slate that they'll do whatever I say. Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, objectively that's a good idea. But yeah, if you've got any sort of legal experience, any sort of forensic science experience, right? Um, they don't want you there. Um and one side or the other will, you know, for example, I'll never be able to serve on a jury, no matter how much I may promise to be fair, mm. because, you know, no prosecutor is going to trust me. Um, and maybe many defense attorneys won't either to be to be like a good juror for their side. But on the flip side, someone who has no experience with this, someone who doesn't understand relevant versus irrelevant evidence, someone who doesn't understand any legal standards is the perfect person for them <laughs> because they have this hubris to say, I'll be able to manipulate this person the way I want. Yeah. So, well, look, it's you know it's something we're not going to fix uh, fix at this moment <laughs> in time. But uh, look, I, I very much do appreciate you uh, spending the time to chat with me. It's been an absolutely fascinating um, conversation, and you know I would love to have you on again at some point to to discuss you know further cases and and that down the road. And um, you know, as as we know, Temujin's at the moment. He's just clemency. I'm assuming is is the one thing we really can hope for, unless someone can find out who really shot Scott Macklem. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. This this clemency. I mean, it's his last realistic shot at the stage. You know, um, 
as I said, we've tried with prior governors, but I think we're in a different place here. Um, the conversation around criminal justice and fairness and all of that has improved. Um, but it's one thing to have a conversation. It's another to take action. And, um, you know, Temujin has more supporters than ever before, both, you know, well-connected people, but also just massive social media followers and all of that stuff. And I'm hoping it'll make a difference because um, I don't think it's fair that just kind of innuendo and, and, and besmirching someone's character gets us to this point, right? Where it not only gets that person convicted, but every time he tries to, you know, say something about it to defend himself, the other side will just say, hey, look, here he goes manipulating everyone again, right? I just think this is such a troubling thing mm. uh, to take a person who didn't commit a crime, decide you don't like them, and manipulate a case to convict them. And then every assertion of innocence is seen as, you know, kind of further proof that this guy is devious. It's just, it's such a bizarre thing. And, and I hope one day we'll overcome it. But here we are, you know, 36 years later. And, you know, obviously Temujin is the one guy who's had to pay the price for this. So whatever level of anger or frustration he might have, it's it, honestly, it's not enough. Because I think... Um, not only has his freedom been taken away from him, they've tried to manipulate this argument to say the fact that he's a smart person, the fact that he knows he didn't do this, and the fact that he continues to advocate for himself is somehow further proof of what a dangerous person he is. This is absolutely idiotic. And uh, I'm, I'm really hoping one day we overcome all of this. Well, look, good for you for, for all the work that you do uh, in this space. Um, uh, and uh, I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Just want to say, of course, a huge thank you to Imran for giving up his valuable time to uh, chat with me. A fascinating guy, a wonderful human being. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. You can check out the amazing work the Michigan Innocence Clinic do online, michigan.law.umic.edu, and I will, of course, put the link to that in the uh, show notes of this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted, and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network.